I too liked the idea of the collaborative nature of a group that was from across the university to help everyone out. Being able to share that across the university was a fabulous thing to be a part of. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In March 2020, Arizona State University, like most other institutions worldwide, was working diligently to devise a plan that would allow for uninterrupted traditional learning solutions amid a pandemic. ASU leadership saw the need to provide an experience that would allow for synchronous teaching, blending in-person students attending via classroom, and utilizing online teaching practices to serve remote students at the same time. This new course teaching modality would become ASU Sync. To achieve this goal and work toward effective university-wide implementation, a call for action headed out of the provost's office was sent out to trainers and instructional designers from many of ASU's academic units, thus building the Sync ID workgroup. The new workgroup's focus was to provide traditional instructors with enough training and support to get them comfortable with teaching remotely in real time. The first task was to determine what an ideal, remote, synchronous learning experience would look like and be manageable for everyone on any campus. Using Canvas, Zoom, and Slack as the three primary tools, the vision of having in-person, on-campus learners that would follow masking and social distancing guidelines with real-time remote learners who could easily connect to instructors and support was now in reach. Five initiatives were identified in order to make ASU Sync a success. Leveraging the experience of our already successful ASU Online Masterclass for Teaching Online to convert to a two-week masterclass experience for remote synchronous teaching. Development of a Canvas course template and training resources that would be easily adaptable for faculty that had never used an online platform before. Scaling our instructional design support to all faculty and developing pathways to support training efforts with digital credentials and badging, a communications group to help coordinate efforts and messaging to faculty and students. The Sync ID workgroup was able to break the silos through communication, sharing, and collaborating to build as many resources and layers of support in a short amount of time as possible. As an answer to the initiatives, the following items were built an ideal sync-focused course template for faculty to have access to when developing their courses, student-centered sync orientation and resources, including information and ideas about building communication in an online environment, remote learning support, self-care practices, and technology support, micro-credentialing and professional pathways to encourage participation in the various workshops and training available by the instructional design teams, and the technology office across the university. A two-week faculty cohort experience, including real-time remote workshops, combined with asynchronous lessons, resources, and discussions made available in a Canvas course. A breakdown of the two-week experience, creating on-demand access to essential information and recordings of sync-focused webinars for just-in-time learning, Instructional design one-to-one -one support efforts that included virtual, drop-in office hours, consultation appointments, the use of Slack channels as a way for faculty to crowdsource and ask specific course design and technology-related questions. It has now been a year since the new ASU Sync modality emerged. 
Today, we will reflect on this experience by talking to a few of the IDs who had a hand in building the foundation. And make sure to stick around for today's hot topic as we keep in line with the idea of transforming education to meet the needs of students by diving into a hack science education blog post. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Celia Kuchwaitiwa from ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues. Hi, I'm Katrina Fogelson. I'm an instructional designer at the College of Health Solutions. I am Allison Hall. I'm the Director of Learning Experience Design in the University Technology Office. I'm Aaron Kraft. I am an instructional designer for Yavapai College. I'm Tim McKean. I'm an instructional designer for the Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts. I am Meredith Savitas. I'm an instructional designer at EdPlus at ASU Online. And I'm Jeanette Senecal, Director of Academic Operations at Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. It's a podcast party today. <laughs> yes, it is. We have a great group today, and we're excited to have all of your voices. All right, let's get started in our conversation and reflections on ASU Sync. So let me start out with asking, before the pandemic, what did collaboration look like across the university? It was much closer than six feet and there weren't masks involved. <laughs> Very Aaron answer. <laughs> From my perspective, collaboration seemed to happen in, in pockets, basically. I mean, I, I don't, I think the word silo has kind of a negative connotation, but it was less structured. If you had a particular interest or you happen to be acquainted with someone working on a project or initiative, you might have an opportunity to connect them and join a work group um, and offer your expertise, but it was it was fairly organic and disjointed. Yeah, like what you said there, you had to know somebody, you had to have some connection or some knowledge that somebody else was working on something and then either invite yourself or get invited in. But yeah, it, there was definitely those pockets. It also, I mean, something about the goal of those um, projects did seem to still feel like, well, I have a particular um, goal related to my area or my program, not exactly that we're, we're all working toward the same goal or the same the same project in mind. We all sort of had, you know, different sections or, or parts. Yeah, I would say it, it was less collaborative uh, creation of things and more troubleshooting and finding out what lessons learned everyone had. It was also difficult to find out what other people were doing. As you mentioned, Jeanette, we were all in our own little pockets. If you knew somebody, maybe you could get together and collaborate on something. Well, and Allison, I remember meeting you for the first time. Our directors actually connected us when you first started. And I was told, you know, can you talk to Allison and just kind of tell her what it is that you do for the team? And I remember thinking, well, but I don't know, like, what exactly the team looks like over there or, you know, some of the projects that they're working on. So it was, it felt a little awkward because it, you know, we have never, I had never been in, you know, that type of conversation conversation with anyone without knowing, you know, what types of things somebody is already doing or what their team is like. So that was, that was definitely an interesting experience, but I don't think that would have happened if our directors hadn't talked to each other. Absolutely. It was, it was very much a, a feel like our parents set us up on a play date. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and, and I was so thankful for it though, because in our building at the time, there wasn't anyone else that I could talk to. And so you really threw me a lifeline about getting started at the university and how to meet people. So thank you. <laughs> so how did each of you come to this group and how did you get 
started with, you know, joining the Sync ID group. One of the reasons I joined is I wanted to be able to bring hot off the presses information to our faculty here at the College of Health Solutions. I wanted to be able to help them be successful in this rapid switch to remote teaching. I was excited to get involved in this group because I've been kind of for a long time an advocate of uh, real-time online instruction and some of the the benefits that online instruction can bring to even in-person classes and, and other situations other than the traditional online course. So when it became clear that all of a sudden we had, I hate to use the word opportunity, but an opportunity to bring this message to the broader ASU audience and the worldwide audience of all these faculty that all of a sudden needed some of these real-time online tools and skills, I definitely saw that my background and my excitement for that area was something that I could could bring to the table for sure. For me, I had been at uh, ASU Online for just a couple of years and I'd only really worked with my own uh, group and in my own program and was sort of intrigued at the idea of, you know, what's going on elsewhere and how can I help and and, you know, what are they doing? I'm I'm inspired by your tales of um, altruistic, uh, helpful natures. Like I was kind of concerned with things just not blowing up and <laughs> turning into a disaster. But functionally, I was not directly involved in the operational work of the group. But my role is to support Celia's engagement and and her leadership in and project leadership in this venue. And then as those various initiatives advanced, I had opportunities to share some feedback and to help implement those outcomes locally in our college, which fully met my objective of, of not having everything turn into a complete disaster and wouldn't ordinarily have been as successful as we were by any means without the, the opportunities provided through this I too liked the idea of the collaborative nature of a group that was from across the university to help everyone out, you know, to everybody to come together and to pool our resources because everybody had a little different take or they've already created something, but getting everybody together, being able to share that across the university was a fabulous thing to be a part of. It also made me feel like I can't believe we don't do more of this when thinking about the templates we created, looking at somebody, you know, some of the other course templates or some of the other program templates and thinking, this is amazing. I can't believe there are some things we've been working so hard to get done at ASU online. And then you say, oh my gosh, this has already been done. And that's likely the same for so many other areas in online instruction. It's it's being done somewhere. Uh, we just need to have the right people on the bus, so to speak. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Katrina. The collaboration piece, I mean, walking into, well, not even walking into, I mean, it was like overnight, we were, you know, <laughs> told all of this is going to happen. But having that worry, like, how do we make this happen? And then being able to join this group where everyone has that same thought, but we were all able to just combine everything that we do and just talk about all the all the stuff we already have and put it all together and figure out how we can make it work for everyone. So what were some of the top collaboration strategies that had the most impact? Honestly, I think enterprise-wide Slack was a game changer for this kind of general collaboration. It truly made, from my perspective, the breadth of expertise across the university much more accessible and community-oriented. Like, I remember just struggling with this tiny technical detail of Zoom one day and realizing I have a network of, you know, literally hundreds of people. I can just pitch the question out immediately and get a response. And knowing that somewhere out there, that knowledge existed. 
Yeah, it really is like the like a hive mind, right? Mm-hmm. Having access to everybody on a very even playing field in a in an asynchronous way is just so incredibly valuable. Yeah, it may not be obvious to to listeners who aren't familiar with ASU, but this place is huge. It's, there are so many colleges, so many schools spread out, and you can be an ID at one end of the college and have never met an ID at the other end of the college before COVID, before we had to start uh, working together and collaborating. And I think that's not necessarily the case now. You had a lot of a lot of effort and participation from everybody, um, uh, including the most disparate elements of which I was one of them. I didn't actually join (laughs) this team, Um, but uh, I don't know why either, but uh, I guess I was busy with other things, but no, it just, ASU is gigantic and it was so easy to be siloed and to not meet your neighbor. Aaron, I think you were busy extending your family at that moment. (laughs) Oh, I had a daughter at that time. Yeah, that's true. Thanks. I know, I knew there was a reason. legitimate reason you might have been a little busy (laughs) i I, I was on my three months off yeah (laughs) thanks that is an interesting part of the conversation that it took such an extreme situation to be a catalyst for the connecting of all those departments of all those pockets as you referred to them but once that need was there it actually started coming together pretty quickly once you know that the tools were in place slack was in place other things uh, that had that we had been putting in place already but it, it, that interesting idea that it's very it was very need driven but once the need was there then it, it allowed us to to get out of our pockets and to to start connecting and to reach out to each other and i was i was going to say that, that that was one of the things that i thought was the most powerful when that need hit all of a sudden we were allowed, I mean, I felt allowed to spend my time with this group rather than spend my time working on the course developments that, that I also needed to be working on. I, I felt allowed to be participating in and building the, the, the toolkit documents uh, that were going to be benefiting a larger group than just the department and the school that I work for. And I think that permission in some ways was one of the big game changers. And it wasn't ever really an expressed permission, but it was a uh, I don't know. I felt that permission in different ways than I had felt that before. I don't know if if you guys felt the same. Sure. Yeah. For the greater good. Uh, I was going to mention this could have easily been such a communication uh, nightmare, but I did feel like not just with Slack, but in terms of our structure of communicating and and meeting uh, where we had kind of the central core group that met and then these work streams and then you know, those work streams met and then brought back information and then went out and met again. And it didn't feel like, oh my gosh, every, you know, there are way too many cooks in the kitchen. It felt like, okay, this was what we need to work on now. Now moving along, who's going to take charge of that? It felt very clean. I'm not sure how we made that happen. That's kind of the irony of the situation is that this thing that pulled us apart drew us closer together than ever before. I would say the tool-wise, Slack for the chat communication and then Zoom and Google, they were just our real lifelines to each other. And, you know, to Tim's point, it's amazing how when given that freedom, how much it increased productivity so that instead of, you know, building these things alone in our silos, we could go so much deeper, farther and faster in, in a shorter amount of time. No, it, it did take some level of coordination and I'm going to throw it maybe back to Allison because it seemed like you were kind of the coordinator or, or leader of this little group. And then you also had some connection to the provost's office, which is really where that permission was coming from. 
Yeah, so um, I, I did come to the, come to the work in a different way in more of a recruitment role. So the Ed Plus and ASU Online and the University Technology Office were tapped with how can we solve this problem and support faculty and students in this shift. And and ASU Online had a fantastic start with their master class for teaching online but it needed adaption to this new modality where we could be mixed in the sync format. And there's no possible way that our two groups could represent all of the needs and interests of every college and unit across the university. And so it was just so essential and pivotal to get you all on board and to have that buy-in so that we could make things that anyone could use, but that you could also customize for the nursing faculty and for the design arts faculty and health solutions folks. So I'm super thankful that we were all able to come together. I think that's a perfect example of how localized contextual knowledge that each college representative brought could feed into globalized resources that would then go back out and be meaningful to the rest of the entire university. And that kind of circular flow wasn't necessarily something we had ever been compelled or had a priority to develop before. And it was really powerful. So we talked about the greater working for the greater good and, you know, reaching the faculty. How did you see your faculty benefit from the work of this group? Well, I know I worked with a faculty who was brand new uh, last fall. So that was after COVID sent us all working from home in March. And she was new to ASU and all of this was new to her. ASU was new to her and sync was new to everybody so she sort of had a double whammy and i was able to just send her to resources for any questions she had if i couldn't answer them i was able to find something that i'm assuming you guys had put together because it was there and it was it was brilliant she had her questions answered whether it were uh, was like a live um sessions with ids which i guess she didn't really need that because she had me but <laughs> I remember there being components that I, I was able to um, connect her with trainings and just the orientation sessions for what is sync and how do we do it? And uh, that was of huge help to her. I also think that, um, you know, since we have so many different colleges at ASU, I think the faculty in each of the colleges sees something that is that came from ASU for their training, let them know that they were they weren't alone in their suffering. They they had a support team and they had all of these resources. They were able to go ahead and reach out to a group that could give them the resources that they need to help them with that transition. You know, because a lot of our faculty are in person on ground. And all of a sudden, you know, I have to do Zoom and I have to do everything in Canvas. And how do I do this? Well, we had the resources available. And I think it was almost kind of like a little bit of a security blanket in a sense that they knew that they were that they had help if they actually needed it. And so part of that challenge was the scale that we were trying to impact. Most of us work for some division that supports online faculty. Uh, so we were already working with only a very small subset of faculty who were teaching those online 
courses. And then all of a sudden we're working with every faculty and having those resources available to refer people to in an asynchronous way really allowed that scaling to happen rather than having to work with everyone individually. As, as Aaron said, they already have IDs that we're their IDs, but instead of having to work with them all individually, we could send them to things that they needed, even if it wasn't something that we created. So all of a sudden we had that uh, repository of all those toolkits. And maybe we should talk about some of the resources that we, that we produced, but being able to have things hosted under the uh, provost's office and having that ASU name on them uh, helped, I think, to have a central repository where we could refer things to and that that lended some uh, credibility to all those resources that then spurred on to those indi individual conversations and those ID one-on-one um, -on -one appointments and things like that. And those one-on-one -on -one appointments are a great point that, you know, we, we talk a lot about the toolkits and the templates and the resources, but some of the greatest resources we were able to connect with were human resources. And so connecting with those ID groups, but also connecting faculty with each other so that they could form their own communities of practice and find their, their people um, and their support system to help through this time. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, having those resources that we can still continue to go back to, which brings me to where do you see this going next and what practices between the resources that were built and the collaboration between the units? What do you think will stick from that? It's a really good question and one that I think we're already starting to see the shape of it is difficult to answer a bit. I think many of these these organic community connections and collaborative efforts will probably continue, even if it's more on a networking basis rather than a dedicated strategic goal basis, as some of those, you know, natural work efforts kind of transition back to more localized operations. But what we've learned from having that local to global organization will stay, I think, and will inform the way that we think about solving problems going forward across the university. Yeah, as Allison mentioned, the the human connections, the relationships that have been formed are probably the things that are going to last the longest. And that's the connections with us, for sure, but also the, the new connections between faculty learning to uh, collaborate more amongst themselves, but also faculty who didn't know they had instructional designers in their school, you know, now are very aware of, of who those are or who are, who is available as a resource around campus. I think a lot of faculty learned Slack for the very first time, and now that's a, a tool that will probably continue as well. Uh, one thing that one of my faculty mentioned, and she mostly teaches online, but did have a couple of in-person courses. Since she had a sync course and she designed it based on you know her week and she has an overview, her learning objectives, she has all the content in there. She did feel like, you know what, I feel so organized now in my face-to-face -face course. I'm going to use these basically as you know best practices. I'm bringing them into my face-to-face -face course, but I also have information and resources for students who maybe need to go back to something they missed in the course. Maybe I can provide additional resources if I think about it instead of bringing it into the class. She just felt like there's no reason why I shouldn't always sort of have this online section for students to be able to go to and for me to be able to organize my my week around. So that's something that I know, you know, that person especially will will continue. I think also faculty aren't as scared of technology as they used to be because of that switch and learning that it was, you know, sometimes there was issues with trying to do lectures through Zoom and getting everybody synchronous. Maybe they started learning that let's put more learning materials online 
and have the class time set for discussions and case studies, you know, get more into the meat of it and, and how to actually apply the, the materials that the students are learning. So almost like learning a little bit about what a flipped classroom might be. I think that might be something that's going to stick. Okay, I'm, I'm comfortable with technology now. So let's go ahead and see how we can use it to the best advantage for myself and for the students. I love that because I totally agree that it's, you know, getting over that that fear and that mourning period of, you know, I loved how things were, but, you know, okay, I have to try this new thing and you know, this this turned out okay. And, you know, having that revelation has helped to build some resilience and anti-fragility to some of these changes. And I think that's going to continue to be important lessons learned. We move through whatever the next phases of, of what's coming our way. And certainly looking at the um, educational technology landscape and how some of our companies were impacted by that and are shifting or might not exist anymore as a result of uh, this time period. And so um, having that continued ability to be flexible and keep trying things out and monitoring and adjusting is uh, super valuable. Well, I think that's a great segue into our hot topic. So I'd like to thank you all for joining in that conversation. And it was great to hear how everyone came together to build an unplanned vision in order to keep students learning through a pandemic. So now let's move on to our hot topic. Today we're chatting about a slightly older hack science education blog post published in 2018 titled, What Larry Cuban Said About Technology Is, Discouragingly, Still Accurate. Although it's been a few years, I've recently come across it being recirculated due to its relevance to the times we're currently living in, so I thought I'd get everyone's thoughts on the author's opinion. Gary Ackerman writes about Larry Cuban's 1986 book, Teachers and Machines, the classroom use of technology since 1920. In the book, Cuban refers to patterns in the use of computer technologies being of a cyclical nature. A new technology is announced, rhetoric is provided promising transformation, dubious research is completed, initial efforts are had, then the technology falls into disuse. Ackerman refers to a previously written post where he encourages the disruption of the cycle, but doesn't feel school and technology leaders have done enough to make real changes other than using technology to deliver the curriculum. Keeping in mind this was posted about three years ago, what are your thoughts on this? 2018 feels like 1997. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there are a couple... Uh key issues when adopting new technology. And I think the first two, at least that come to my mind, are the perception of, is this valuable to me? And is it easy to use? I think you saw the, is this easy to use uh, issue come up when ASU was implementing sync in the classrooms and they had the various types of classroom setups, one more increasingly complex than the next. And, you know, and, and sometimes that complexity can, can get in the way. And the usefulness, well, you know, you're asking faculty to adopt something or say, hey, try this out, but do they know how to use it? 
Do they want to learn how to use it? And that could be our job is to teach, you know, here's this platform and here is a knowledge type that actually fits with the platform. And here's how you can deliver it to the students. They need that modeling, I think, not just to be thrown something and say, okay, check this out. Let me know. I think that's largely what ends up happening. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we look back at the Larry Cuban quote that the article is referencing is way back from 86, right? And he's and he's talking about his article is is looking at education technology from the 20s through the 80s, right? Um, and so we can see that this is a trend that's consistent, regardless of the level of technology that education just has this problem adapting new tools and techniques. And the articles or the reasons that Cuban gave are, you know, the, the cost and the, the, but the big one to me is the connection to the curriculum and that there was not a clear connection to the curriculum. It's not just a, a new tool to deliver the same old curriculum. And then uh, Eckerman, the author of, of this article is, is saying that same thing is we didn't change the curriculum. You know, we just changed the delivery mechanism. But I think, and again, we've, we've kind of mentioned some timelines here. You know, uh, this was published in 2018. Uh, a lot's happened since 2018. You know, if we can put COVID aside for a second, I think the big thing that's happened since 2018, and, and some of you can, can share your own experiences on this, the instructional design field has happened in that time. I got my first instructional design job around 2015. I hadn't even heard of that before. I came from the classroom. I was a, a professor and a, a public school teacher and, you know, been designing my curriculum and designing instructional materials for for decades. And all of a sudden there's this job that you could just get to do that and, and no grading and no parent conferences and all, you know, so that sounded pretty good. So I, I think this field has developed in, in such a way that we're finally addressing the actual issue of using the technology to change the curriculum, to change the experience, to uh, improve the learning, not just deliver a website. So we're always beating this drum of pedagogy before technology, right? Like that's, so we're living in this space, instructional designers and people who work implementing various forms of, of technology to make it strategic to make it meaningful. So I agree with you, Tim, that the proliferation and the visibility of instructional design, the further advancement of online education has given us more momentum around this idea that technology can be more than a tool, but less than just a, a mindless platform. We're finding the sweet spot a bit. Ideally, the experience of living through the pandemic and getting through some of the harder parts there will not set that work back. That's my hope. But the point here, I think that there's still concern about uh, uninformed leadership imposing things upon instructors or, or other, you know, entry-level workers. It's well taken. It's still happening. It's still a problem in some institutions. I think we did a nice job of sort of reining in our definition of innovative here. I, I, I think innovative lots of times is like, let's get enticed by shiny things. You know, as you've all alluded to, strategic best practices, consistency, um, those simple, you know, ideas of, about teaching can be innovative. I'm going to give a little plug for our university technology office, because I think it ties in, um, you know, well with this conversation that, you know, during this time, they created the learning experience design group that didn't exist before because they recognized it doesn't matter how cool the tools are, if it's not rooted in teaching and learning and the mission of the university, what are we doing here? And so I'm, I'm super proud to be a part of that group. To Tim's point about the, the youth of the field, I think we're all still 
you know, we're in the design thinking cycle about our own learning design processes. And I think one of the key things that helped us all through this, and I think is a a shift in the field and how we work is that we started with the agreed mindset that everything would be in faculty-friendly language, that we'd offer scripts when possible to make it as easy to translate in the practice. So focusing less on tools and tutorials and how do I use these these uh, the mechanics of things and really getting into that human element of how is this helping my students? When do I use this appropriately in the classroom? So I think uh, that mindset shift I'd love to see continue in the field. And I think we are seeing it. I mean, I'm, I mentioned that the instructional design field is is fairly new in itself, but I think we're starting to see ID 2.0 kind of emerging out of adding COVID back into this, emerging now where we're seeing this trend of educators making the switch into instructional design where, uh, and in our article even refers to it, this idea that the technology experts were transplants from from business and not necessarily educators. We're now seeing people that were trained in education coming into ID and coming into that faculty student experience mindset first. And I love that our school has uh, developed this uh, learning experience department. Um, a lot of schools are starting to change uh, even titles from instructional design to learning design, kind of focusing on that that learning and educational element. Um, I was listening recently to the Luke Hobson's podcast his, uh, if I could mention another podcast, uh, episode 20, his interview with uh, Ali Siddiqui, who has also uh, worked at ASU before. The podcast and the episode is about project-based learning, but but they really talk about this trend of educators coming into the field from that context. And I think that's that's the next step is uh, letting letting these people, experts who are both have a foundation in education, but also have a, a foot in the world of applying that technology in that foundation. Uh, that's going to be really, really impactful. And now we're st- starting to see that trickle down into the K-12 level as well, which is only going to have, it's going to be a multiplier. So I think I think there's some very optimistic things happening in the field. Yeah, if you can always bring in that with him, you know, that what's in it for me from the student standpoint, you know, why should we be using this technology? How is it going to enhance? Then we're a step a step ahead of just, you know, just, here's this technology, use it. Well, I really appreciate all of that. And I glad that you put in that plug, Allison, because I feel like ASU really has, I wouldn't say improvement, but I feel like they've taken some great steps into ensuring that everything that we do has a meaningful reason, you know, especially in the technology implementation and how we're using the tools and what we're doing with them. So I'm glad you mentioned that. All right, everyone. Well, it's always fun adding in more friendly voices to the podcast. It's definitely been an experience over the last year, and I appreciate your taking the time to join us today to reflect on the journey it's been and continues to be. I'd like to thank Allison Hall, Katrina Fogelson, Tim McKean, Meredith Savitas, Jeanette Senecal, and Aaron Kraft for reflecting on ASU Sync and classroom technology. As always, we have a great appreciation for Aaron as both a participant and the guy who has to edit to take all our voices and make a masterpiece out of them. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. 
This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Can I just say that at first my brain read that as Mark Cuban had some thoughts on technology yeah, the and Dallas education. Dallas Mavericks owner, yeah. Right? I had and to go through that process like, as well, yeah. Yeah, Shark Tank. Mark Cuban, Mark. You, keep, you keep it to yourself, Mark Cuban. <laughs> right? He's got opinions on everything.